This is Hitting the Mark. Conversations with founders about the intersection of brand clarity and startup success. With your host, brand strategist and author, Fabian Geierhalter. So that idea of communicating your truths in organic ways, no matter where anybody is encountering you, that's the basis of branding. And so, you know, a lot of times that's the right logo or the right tagline or, you know, in the case of these branding exercises, having the right fonts and the right color schemes and all that kind of stuff. But those are really just sort of technical ways of achieving this idea of your identity being foundationally baked into all the different ways that a, that a person encounters your, your brand. This was Adam Rich, who co-founded Thrillist by sending out an email newsletter to 600 people about things to do in New York City. Well, as they say, the rest is history. I talk with Adam about how a newsletter turned into a trusted brand and a global multi-platform media monster hitting the eyeballs of more than 300 million people a month. How understanding and sticking to your brand's DNA is key to brand growth. How emotion and data demand to coexist. And why thinking about your brand's legacy must inform your brand's every action. But before we dive in, I'd like to ask you to show your support for the only podcast where founders of the most exciting brands talk openly about their brand's strategies. Your support will ensure that we can keep this ever-growing show advertising-free. And you'll get me as a mentor in return. And wouldn't that be a nice way to kick off 2022? Learn more by heading over to patreon.com slash hitting the mark. And now, without further ado, over to my edutaining conversation with Adam Rich. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's so good to have you. Um, we, we had the pleasure of meeting on a different occasion, yet also sadly virtually, but uh, that was a couple of months ago and you and I just talked business. So it is nice to have you officially behind the mic to chat about, I guess, the over 17 years you spent, uh, and I'm paraphrasing you here from your LinkedIn profile, turning, yeah. turning your obsession with getting the best out of New York City into a global lifestyle beast. So... <laughs> how how were those how were those first months and and the first years of that of that long journey how did you start thrillist uh with your co-founder yeah you know uh it really just started uh extremely organically as as you know i think everybody would like to believe that their business is meant to but um you know we were friends from college living in new york city uh talking about all the different things going on and um you know i was just completely dazzled by how much stuff was happening all around me and had this real, real fear that I was missing the good stuff because I just knew that, you know, with limited time and money, um, you had to really take your shots. And um, you know, I was a couple years out of school and didn't have that much money or that much time and um, would go and talk to friends, uh, people that had been in cities a little bit longer than I had and ask them what I should be doing. And what I found talking to him was that there was a pretty broad interest in a trusted voice uh, on how to spend your time and what was really exciting and what was worth your limited time and money. So that 
conversation just about kind of what you were doing tonight and how you're spending your weekend and where you were taking a date quickly turned into a lifestyle product. And um, we started as an email newsletter. That was sort of our first, uh, our, our first modality. So um, that sort of gave us a platform to start getting this value out to our consumers. And through the years, as Thrillist grew and changed and became so many other things, the thing that really helped me keep it true to that original premise was that idea of value to an audience and making sure that everything you did uh, left them the better for it. And, you know, it's interesting because because the newsletter still seems to be at the heart of Thrillist, even today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really it's really our direct conduit to our consumer. Uh, and, and I think that there's it, it's it's still very central to the brand in a couple of ways. Number one is just in sort of a lifestyle offering where if, if we promise to keep you up on the very latest and greatest, having an email every single day waiting for you with that information is a really, really good and intuitive way to deliver that. As a publisher, it's also tactically really proven to be extremely critical because in this era of the, the kind of social platforms intermediating publishers from their audience and, you know, what does the Facebook algorithm think of this and how is Google ranking that, to be able to have that direct connection with them where you send an email and it gets to them and it has whatever you put in it is really a pretty, a, a pretty um, critical tool to have in your belt as a publisher. And as anybody who's built an email list can tell you, there is no such thing as a good, quick email list. You've just got to chip away at it forever. And so we started collecting email addresses back in 2004 and, uh, you know, just kept building on it from there. Yeah, all 600 of them, right? That's how you started. <laughs> 600 <It> was, people. <laughs> we're literally just going through our pockets and like who was unfortunate enough to have given us a business card and whose friend uh, could we send and who, who was in a sorority at, at Madison that was going to send it to her friends. So the influencers, really, right? Early influencer yeah, exactly. marketing. It, that's what you did. We, that's right. Nobody knew, knew to call them that, but uh, that's what they became. It's kind of um, funny, and, yeah, yeah, how just, these how these terms, uh, you know, start start existing. And even though they they already they were always influencers, right? I mean, totally. ever since the first day of advertising and marketing, but but now we have a term. No, it's so true, and I think that that's like that's such an interesting arc to kind of reflect back on, where you know we didn't know to call them that, but there were always these influencers. There was always the person you knew that had a total handle on you know, nightlife or, or the new chefs or what was going on on the club scene. Um, and then we then we figured out to call them influencers. And then as soon as you put a label on it, then people start to find it loathsome. And I feel like that's sort of just the natural <laughs> progression of these sorts of like social phenomena. Absolutely. And, and talking about which uh, you were, I mean, you were one of the pioneers really in the in the content meets commerce game, right? Um, and, and and things changed so dramatically. I mean, you know, since 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 you since you did that, um, you must have spent a lot of your time um, defending Thriller's position by just constantly toying around with what's new and what's next. What what were some of the most challenging and exciting moments at Thrillist during during your seventeen year tenure? Well, the thing that we had had to, and I think probably still have to, really be loud and vocal about is that 
while we, um, while our primary ad product since day one has been branded content, our editorial content is not for sale and is 100% editorial and isn't influenced by advertisers or anything like that. It really is just what we believe to be the very best thing out there. And so the thing that was discouraging, especially in the early days, was talking to people about, you know, Thrillist and what we do. And you'd have someone say, oh, you know, I really am enjoying it. And, you know, I really don't mind that the restaurants are paying you. And we're like, no, no, that's not what's happening. And like, you know, up and not only is that not what's happening, it's also completely unrealistic to imagine that this little restaurant that just opened up is going to have the budget to go and do a media spend. Right. But I think that one of the things that we've always had to contend with is from day one, pursuant to what I was saying before about always leaving people the better for having engaged with your product and brand, we always knew that we wanted to be recommendation only. We figured that there are plenty of places to go and hear the bad news about something not being good. But if you could be a brand that, that everybody knew the minute that they saw your content and your offering, that they could come away feeling better about a thing, that there's something they can put on their list, that that's just a good way of putting good energy into, into, your, into your relationship with, with people. Um, but what we found was that there was just a lot of inherent skepticism around, po around positive reviews and being a positive voice out there. I think people are so accustomed to being marketed to in so many ways and through so many different channels that it, it's just sort of an ongoing reinforcing message that we have to put out there that we're positive and we're saying that things are good and that you should go and spend your time and money on them. But it's not because they're paying us. It's because we've done the research and we've really found that they're worth it. Well, and like you said, I mean, people are jaded, right? So, I mean, even 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 I am always surprised when I look at uh, the content of Thrillist. Uh, you know, even even today, right? Um, it, where you know you you have your you have your holiday you know shopping list, like this is what's mm -hmm. hot this season, right? And 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 then I'm so surprised that in the end, it's actually you know it's very thematic, right? So so you go mm -hmm. you know towards like for the for the, for the foodie in your life or for the high finder mm -hmm, or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and then you go in there and it's actually someone from the scene you know like a great a great mm -hmm. chef or someone who's a you know who, who's who's in that in that hi-fi scene talking about well this is what you should give because this is the stuff that i like and so it's it becomes so authentic and i think that that's mm -hmm. that authenticity is something that that a site like thrillist like you said must have constantly been fighting for to actually to actually own that of like yeah no we're yeah. we're just as good as these great voices around us that we invite into our brand so that you can actually you know get get you know get the best stuff from people that 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 we think you know know their know their stuff yeah and that's a thing that that has taken us a long time to really dial in because in the beginning and and, and you'll still see that with some of the content that we create it's it's from Thrillist. Um, and those are really about the areas that we own where, you know, city to city, we really know what's going on. We know what the good restaurants are. We know the, the cool places to get a cocktail. That's something where we don't have to borrow any kind of credibility from uh, another voice. But as we branched out into more and more different types of content, the idea that there were other people out there who were interested in creating with us that could lend that that authenticity and that expertise. Um, that was a that was a that was a very calculated decision to decide. Hey, you know, here's where the thrillist 
expertise really needs to be needs to come in heavy and we don't need to go and talk to anybody about where you should go and make a reservation this weekend but when it comes to hi-fi components or you know gift guides stuff like that it's good to go and and work with somebody to to borrow a little bit of that credibility and and work together to come up with a uh, sort of a hybrid offering that is really dialed into the interests of our audience but leans on a little bit of what this person has really become known for and is expert in. Yeah, and I, I, I absolutely love that approach. And I mean, it comes through even in the content that you create yourself um, as, as Thrillist, right? If you have a certain list or a certain editorial feature, um, it's it's so cool when you scroll all the way down to the bottom, you've got, you actually give credit to the people within Thrillist, right? Like this mm -hmm. on this feature, this was the creative director, these were the editors, these were the writers, right? And and I think, again, that is authenticity, right? Like like everyone owns this um, and it's not nothing, nothing of that sort is paid for so but um but 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 we talked about social media for a second before you brought up uh, the different channels and i mean you know these days right i mean you know coming from twitter then to snapchat uh, insta now tiktok um content these days for maturity uh travels outside of the website right and and the way that the way that sure. thrillist was in the beginning created obviously was a platform <laughs> like you go here like you go to a newspaper right it just happens to be digital right um how does a brand like thrillist create content specific to these various platforms to get the most out of them and 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 when do you abort some of them to focus on on the ones that show the most roi yeah it's a great question the the idea that we arrived at you know a few years back when you were starting to see the social platforms not just being popular but being these conduits for content um, was really this idea of setting aside our kind of position as, hey, we're, we're people running a website and here's how we're sort of operationally set up and that's where we publish our content and our ads go next to it and that's how we make money. But again, taking a step back, kind of to what I was saying before where we stay really close to this idea of owing uh, a service offering to the audience and just sort of imagining you know, what does this person want from us? How do we go and respect the fact that they're now spending a bunch of time on Facebook? Thrillist should be part of that experience because they're our audience. So how do we go and sort of fish where the fish are and um, say, okay, we're not gonna say you're on Facebook, we're gonna go on Facebook and just send you a link to take you out of Facebook and bring you to our website because that's what we're used to, that's where we're used to meeting you. Yeah. Instead to say, okay, what are the opportunities within the Facebook platform and how do we respect their choice to spend time where they are. And so whether that's our Instagram handle, which is awesome and you know just has such, a, such an exciting blend of content from travel to food to you know things to do um, to the, the videos that we publish onto Facebook directly into the feed where you know, if you're going through your feed looking for interesting stuff to kill a minute, there's a video right there and we're not asking you to visit our site and deliver us an ad impression. Um, it's sort of one of those questions that we just had to ask ourselves at pretty regular intervals as the digital publishing landscape would change. Um, sort of who are our people and, and we've stayed really close to that. Where are they spending time and how do we go and respect the nature of that environment to bring them the message that they've come to love Thrillist for. 
and in talking about you know who who are who are your people in in the beginning you kind of self-defined your people through creating this list <laughs> this list of 600 people it's like these are kind <laughs> of like supposedly hopefully our people but it's also just you know just, just kind of like throwing things out there whoever you have right how did you how, how did you in the beginning de define your audience over the first couple of months or, or half a year a year or or did the audience start defining you to a certain extent well we started with what we knew And our, our origin story was, you know, a series of the conversations that I described before between me and my business partner. But once we started to feel that we actually had something to say and that, that we needed a platform to get it out there uh, to a scale audience, we looked around and tried to identify other publications that had you know, the same kind of lifestyle ideas that, that, that met the needs of a, of a specific audience that weren't super broad. Because part of what I was frustrated by as a consumer in New York in 2003, 2004, was that you'd go onto, you know, something like City Search at the time, and it would say, this restaurant is hip and affordable. And I would think to myself, well, is it affordable for me, a 23-year-old guy <laughs> at my first job? Or is it affordable for the guy that like, you know, just got out of that black car? So the idea of really kind of getting specific about who we were talking to was something that we knew we wanted to dial in from day one. And so we looked around and there was actually at the time a really successful publication called Daily Candy. Oh, I remember. It dates me was, a little bit, but yeah, I do remember. So they were, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you and me both, brother. They, they were um, nicely designed but, too. I remember that they had some. Oh yeah, uh, they yeah, had a great, the, they had the a great thing, and they were like, they were, and they were perfectly aligned with the sort of like Sex in the City moment of totally. the early aughts. Yep, the illustration you know? style, and, exactly. Yeah, 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 and like just down to the illustrations and everything. So we really admired their business and looked at what they were doing for women in New York around shopping, around new restaurants, and recognized that for the people we understood best, you know, young guys in the city, there, there was room for essentially a, a, a male gendered analog to that. So our, our, early, our early days were actually as a male interest publication where, you know, it wasn't really about necessarily like, here's like where you go to get a shave, but it was just sort of like, What is a guy thinking about? You know, the idea mm -hmm. of where you take a girl on a first date where it's going to be really romantic and look great, but like maybe won't break the bank. So you know, things like that, that we just knew from talking to one another and our friends from school, that there were just a lot of us out there asking these questions and there wasn't anybody really coming in and answering them. So this is just sort of a long way of saying that when we got started, we were really dialed into this idea of like a post-college guy in an urban environment. Um, and then we just started to kind of watch the numbers and look at where people were coming from and, and who was engaging with our stuff. And we just realized that we were, we were kind of limiting ourselves by saying that we were male interest and that you know, really what we were about was a lean forward attitude toward getting the best out of the place you live. And that didn't have to do with being a, a man or woman or whatever, however you identify, it was just about a sort of relationship to discovery. And so we very quickly just started to think about things much more inclusively. And we weren't afraid of daily candy at that point. And so we just said, hey, we're just, we're kind of for everybody. It's, it's about whoever wants to go out there and try something new and have some fun.
And was that was that the time where I mean I guess today you call it hypergrowth, uh, but but I mean was that was that the time when you made that switch to 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 not be focused and not niched and actually open it up? Was that the time where you suddenly saw a big surge, or, or when did when did you feel like you know th there was this big breakthrough moment where you felt like okay this is not a little startup newsletter idea now this is actually a brand we're turning into a brand when when was that moment? Well. You know, it's it's interesting because when you sent me uh, the questions that you like to ask guests, and I, I started thinking about that idea of, of kind of when were we a brand, what I realized is that we pretty much from jump had to think of ourselves as a brand because being a subscale media offering that's advertising supported, you unless you're a brand, unless you've got like a like a significant component of sizzle versus the amount of stake that you've got at that point, hmm. you're not going to be able to get those first couple ad deals. And without those first couple ad deals, then you don't get the next ones. So from, from get-go, we had to be thinking about ourselves as being more than just a business or more than just a growth strategy or a content strategy. And that there was some kind of, you know, intangible little spark to what we were doing, even if we were only 600 people. Um, and, and one of the ways that we we started to, to started out cultivating that sizzle was that when we launched among those 600 people, we actually went out there and specifically sought out bloggers in New York City, people that had blogs and readerships and were specifically focused on the kind of urban lifestyle, um, and basically invited them to share Thrillist with their audiences and gave them each a preview code because you couldn't sign up at that point without having a preview code, we were still in beta. And so that sort of having that sort of insider buzz in the early days was something that helped with growth, sure, but it also had the right people talking about us at those early moments that turned us into more of a brand than our numbers or our business would suggest we were, you know, in straight business terms. That's really nice. I, I I like that because that's I mean that's the grassroots idea, right? And that's how things really that that's how brands explode in a positive way, right? Um, when when you have enough of that sizzle going on, right? Um, and sure. And I, I mean that's that's the big that's the big you know question: data versus emotion, right? And and I know you and I mm -hmm. in, in in the marketing and branding world, we're constantly faced with that, right? Um, with I guess with Thrillist in the beginning, the idea of data wasn't really that much around, right? I mean, it was more about like, oh, how many newsletter subscribers do we have, right? How many people actually oh, yeah. open it? But there wasn't this humongous amount of data where you could do all these tests. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of it was in the beginning was was just gut instinct of, of you and your co-founder totally. and the team, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, so many times we would we would sort of get a pitch for something or discover a thing and just kind of look up from our computer and our, you know, uh, open floor plan, shared office space, and sort of look around our editorial pit, say, is this cool? And people would be like, nah, nah, that's, nah, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to do it. And so that was kind of the, that was this, that was the sort of litmus test. And as an email, you know, you had, you didn't know how long people were spending with your, with your newsletter. You didn't know whether they were using the forward button at the top of the Amazing, program huh? to yeah, forward yeah, a thing. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it was such a black box. Um, but you know, to, to your question before around hypergrowth, one of the things that was a major turning point for Thrillist was, and, and again, like we've never stepped away from the importance and the, and the value of the email offering, but 
we made a major pivot in the way that we thought about our local content. Um, I want to say maybe 2010, 2011, a away from being driven by feeding the email toward this sort of phenomenon that we were seeing with Google and its algorithm where locality was being increasingly presented as an important dimension to search and where you showed up in results. And when we started to shift our emphasis toward search-oriented local content, all of a sudden, not only were we getting like reams of data we weren't used to just because hmm. of you know web analytics being so much more sophisticated and nuanced than email analytics, but Google just started to like send us just reams and reams of traffic. And so that was really a major growth inflection point where it just, you know, the email grows in such a linear plodding fashion if right. you're doing everything right. Uh, but if you have something sort of algorithmic like the Google search algorithm to uh, to start sending people your way and you get it right, it's a really, really different. I mean, it's a geometric growth rather than a linear growth. And and I, I like to I like to celebrate great brand builders and great brands uh, like like yourself and like Thrillist on this on this show. But um, you know sometimes every now and then I actually like to talk about a brand fail. <laughs> like was there was there was there anything well, in this? You got the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything was perfect at all times. We went in hundred ten percent with everything we've done. That's it. Thank you very much for the interview. Right. Um, but yeah, what well, was there? Great talking. <laughs> Was there anything, I mean, what, what, was there some point in those 17 years where you were part of it? Not after, because I'm sure afterwards everything went yeah. downhill when once you left, oh, yeah. I mean, well, how I can it, how that, can it sustain, yeah. right? But was there, was no, there anything yeah, where you true. felt like, you know what, um, th that was something where maybe other people can learn from, or that that was a big full part yeah. that we did? Totally. And, you know, I think of it as, as, a, as a, a big, a big failure, but the truth is that it, it that this sort of so so we went through a period where we came up with a bunch of sort of expansion content verticals and stepping beyond um, food and drink and and events and we thought okay well you know we're here helping people kind of navigate these aspects of their lives what else is going on in in our audience's lives and can we step into those verticals those categories and add the kind of value that they're used to getting from us around food and drink. And so it was a very well-meaning kind of play and expansion. Um, and so we, we launched um, an entertainment vertical, a sex and dating vertical, and a health vertical oh, wow. uh, alongside the wow. kind of more lifestyle ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, here's, and here's the thing. Um, the the entertainment vertical has proven to be very strong it's now the watch uh yeah exactly so so site. i thought yeah 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 exactly so that yeah. made that's a vibe and, and that's yeah that's been great and that's been one that i've been extremely proud of but you know with sex and dating and with health it was just you know the 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 proposition was was there but it didn't really align with the core reasons that people found us to be special and worth uh, engaging exactly. with, especially health. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, for me, as a person who loves to go out and, and eat and drink too much, I, I also am active. And so I thought to myself, oh, well, you know, I would appreciate this kind of, of thoughtful guidance that I get with my restaurants around how to be healthier, how to be more active and that kind of thing. But ultimately, 
even as we started to grow audiences against these things and they were pretty healthy, uh, we came to just realize that they were undermining the clarity of the brand's identity for people. And even if they were growing nicely and bringing in new, new audience and new traffic, the value of the, the, like a clear brand identity was worth more than you know the tonnage of new eyeballs that that two new content uh, sets could bring into us. So you know, as, as we were saying, we kept entertainment and it evolved into watch, and that was really a wonderful thing to have, especially through the pandemic, as you know, so much attention that used to be on going out and engaging externally became, what do you watch? How do you go and spend your time during this weird period? Uh, to have an, a, a, a mature offering to address that was really wonderful. Um, and, and we're, we're really glad to be able to help people with that period if, as much as we could. But for sex and dating and health, it just, we realized that we had taken a step in the wrong direction and lost a bit of clarity with those things. I, I love I love that you shared this. And, and and like you said, it wasn't necessarily a brand fail. It was it was expanding. It was expand and it wasn't even expanding too quickly. It was just expanding into something that did not that did not go back to the core of the brand. And I think that that's when you talked about the you know brand clarity, right? Because to me that is that is literally everything, right? It's like, you know sure. it's the brand clarity that the, the brand clarity behind Thrillist is we we are very clear about you know giving you better options what to do right if you want to know what to do mm -hmm. and health is not what to do right sex and yeah. dating i guess it's what to do but it's not quite what to do right <laughs> i mean yeah. it, it's so it's so on the it's on the outskirts of your brand's dna which is really which yeah. is really around fun right and and yes. and that and that and 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 health it's not fun i mean you want to be healthy no. but it's not fun right sex and dating it's complicated it can be fun but it can be everything else too <laughs> so yeah yeah and you know there are all kinds of different ways to kind of look at those decisions and evaluate how much they were in true with the original the original spark of what made thrillist into a thing to begin with and, and one way that you can kind of think about it is there is that even if you aren't going and eating at the restaurant that we've written about, the excitement around going out, discovering new things, doing new things, and, um, and just sort of engaging with your city and having fun is something where even if you're not doing it, it has like a degree of social capital to it where you, you you can get value out of our content even if all you're doing is talking to a friend at the water cooler or I guess these exactly. days over Zoom yeah. about about exciting things that that are around you and that might be good and there's this sort of social currency to the kinds of things that have made Thrillist into a success that that health doesn't really align with and as far as sex and dating goes yeah I think that we we kind of can imagine that our audience can figure that stuff out on their own. You know, you're not going to the water cooler and being like, how do I talk to this girl? <laughs> exactly. It's about being in the know. I mean, that, that, a lot of it has to yeah. do with that, right? And being able to expand your horizon and that of others that, that, that you talk to. And I guess, I mean, that, that, that leads straight to, to one of my favorite questions, which is, you know, your, your brand's DNA, right? The DNA of Thrillist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I already hinted at it a little bit, right? Because on, on Instagram, currently it says taking fun seriously, which quite, quite frankly, I love, right? Because it's, it's such yep. a fun three words and it's so fun, right? So, it, I mean, is fun the brand's DNA? 
I think so. We've played around with all different ways of articulating this this thing that you know for my business partner and me and the early employees was always right there. And I think that that's one of the places where brand gets so interesting is when you have something that begins with a couple of real true believers that just have a sense for what this thing is meant to be and how it's so, supposed to look and sound and feel and taste. And then you've got to go and grow and you've got to have all the people that are there making it happen just as lockstep dialed into this idea of brand, this idea of DNA. And then all of a sudden you're thinking, how do I articulate this thing that makes fundamental sense to me that I never have to second guess myself about and that is 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 co as concrete as the chair I'm sitting in. And then how do I go and, and articulate that? And so it's a thing that we, like so many brands, have had to just continually work at. And I think taking fun seriously is a really, really great new iteration of this idea where you know the the, the implication is that fun that having the best fun isn't easy and if we're doing our jobs we're going and crunching all the numbers and working late nights and building the experience and writing the code so that for you it's just as easy as an email or doing a google search that we come out at the top of to know what you're going to go and do that weekend with your college buddy who's visiting Totally, and and I mean, you you already you already answered answered a lot of uh, a lot of that, and maybe you you have already answered it. But but what after after everything you've 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 been through with Thrillist and then working on plenty of other other brands uh, since then, uh, what does branding mean to you? Like, how would you define branding? It's a it's a very misunderstood wow. word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it, I think it can become a little bit of a dirty word because I think that for a lot of companies and businesses that haven't really thought about it from day one or that didn't that didn't begin with an, an intuition around it, it becomes a thing you're talking about when you're having problems and there isn't enough of a clear space in the market for you, or maybe someone is coming and eating your lunch and then it's like, uh-oh, do we need to deal with a branding agency and do we need to go and build all these weird decks? And you know, I think brand is actually something that is so much more simple It's it's really about, you know, it's I think it's a two part thing. And number one is just a an extremely clear and specific notion of identity and what sort of essentiality you have. And and the way that I think about that is like if you were to go away tomorrow, what would be the whole like who would have a hole in their life and why would there be nothing else out there to just go and fill it? And when I talk to people that are going and starting a business, and and I I really push them on this question because I think if the answer is well if we went away tomorrow they would just go and sign up for this or they would decide you know okay I, like Hulu is going to get me my sports then you know you, then you've got a real uphill climb uh, because you don't have something that is really differentiated and so that idea of identity and essentiality is the first part of branding. And then the second part is just that, that everywhere that someone encounters you, you are articulating those truths in a way that is, that is natural for the place that they're encountering you. So if it's, if it's Snapchat, you're not going in and relying on like big blocks of text to go and explain something. You're not, you're not trying to share you know, something you've written out that's a mission statement. You know, you're, you're platform native, you're context native. 
And so that idea of communicating your truths in organic ways, no matter how no, no matter where anybody is encountering you, that's the basis of branding. And so, you know, a lot of times that's the right logo or the right tagline, or, you know, in the case of these branding exercises, having the right fonts and the right color schemes and all that kind of stuff. But those are really just sort of technical ways of achieving this idea of your identity being foundationally baked into all the different ways that a, that a person encounters your your brand. I 110% agree with you. I'm I'm not surprised uh, that I that I do, but uh, I, you know the, the the first part of of your answer uh, about brand legacy that is also one of one of those key exercises mm. that I do with clients because it's so important. Yeah. Of like like if you wouldn't be around, right? Like what would people yeah. feel, right? And then suddenly yeah. it, it suddenly it's about emotional connection and not products and features and right like and data, but it's but it's about totally. oh what is that loss? And if if you have a really hard time defining that, then then you have yep. some work to do I, I totally agree absolutely well and i think that that i think that 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 idea of emotion is something that is so core in any kind of real branding effort because you know we're, we're just human animals and our instincts and our brains are no different than you know early tool users on the plains you know a hundred thousand years ago or however long ago it was that we were you know like cavemen or, or cave people but that idea that like you're still ultimately with all of your sophisticated tools and digital platforms and blah 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 you're still ultimately pulling the same levers that kept kept a hunter gatherer safe uh, and fed <laughs> is really important and and I think it can help you help you avoid overthinking things just to recognize that you owe people uh, like value and 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 positive emotions. You know, the only difference is that back then the hunters didn't have thrillists, so they didn't know where to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And hey, we're for gatherers too. That's right. That is exactly right, but for no one else. And that's it. Um, that's awesome. Right. Just, hey. <laughs> <for the> <laughs> um, as, as we're coming slowly, slowly to an end here, uh, um, you're, you're now a consultant like myself. Uh, what what yeah. kind of projects um, fascinate you and, and, and what do you want to do more of in the coming year? Um, when, when this is going to air, it's going to be just around the holidays. So, um, so what are you oh, looking forward to in, 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 in the future for, for your own, for your own um, you know, career? Well, the, the, my initial entry into the consulting work that I've been doing now for a couple of years really was inspired by something I was starting to see, um, just sort of broadly speaking, you know, over the years, we grew a very large audience, a very large and healthy audience without doing any kind of marketing spend. Um, and it was through creating content and telling stories and helping people out and just doing that over and over again. And one of the things that I was starting to see as, uh, as, as Thrillist was coming up with new tricks for the changing landscape and all, and all the sorts of, all the sorts of things you hear from everybody from content creators to marketers was that brands of every type were asking a lot of these same questions. You know, even if you were running a D to C, uh, like pots and pans brand, you had your acquisition budget, but, but I think a lot of people in this day and age have this sort of sense that if you turned off spend tomorrow, would your business just stop? Hmm. And the answer that I think a lot of people in all different industries have come to realize is that you've got to be doing some organic storytelling, audience development, whatever you want to call it. There is the need for your brand to just be out there and to be, and to be engaging with your people. 
in a way that isn't just around a sale or a campaign or just straight up acquiring them. And so what I've been doing um, for the most part is helping brands of all different types figure out what that should be for them. Because the answer isn't just to go and say, hey, I'm like, I've got a new brand. And so let's have a Twitter handle, uh, an Instagram account. Uh, you know, it's like, you've got to go and be like, and be much more nuanced about it. And why are we here? And, and is our strategy actually to go really heavy on content for LinkedIn? You know, like, is that the answer? Because we're actually a, like a new, a new kind of company that's disrupting traditional accounting firms. Now that's an answer. Totally. So that's kind of how I got into the consulting work that I'm doing. Um, and part of what I've just really been enjoying after so many years with Thrillist and, you know, I've left my operational capacity there, but you know, it's all still always kind of a thing that I'm, I'm paying attention to it's really exciting to go and see how different each of the, each of the different companies are and, and how nuanced the answers can be given the audience they're trying to reach, the kind of emotions that they want to inspire, the, the places that they want to be thought of as being an expert. Um, and so that discovery just on my own part of all the, all the variety out there after so many years of focusing in on my, my business, has been really exciting. Um, so that's Very really cool. been that's really been the part that I've, ex I've I've been digging and being nerdy about. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fantastic, and that, that is really exciting. Um, and, and I love the way that you 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 showcase uh you know the, the pain points that people have too, and sometimes they don't even know they have it. Um, how how sure. can how can people connect with you? Uh, is is the best way uh, LinkedIn, or can they follow you on, on on social? Because I guess everyone knows how to find Thrillist, so I don't need to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, find me. Find me on LinkedIn. Send me an email, adam at adammrich.com. The M is important because there's a realtor in Colorado Springs who beat me to adamrich.com. Imposter. He gets a lot of emails. <laughs> well, I mean, this guy's been invited to bachelor parties and gotten all kinds of emails. But uh, <laughs> I think he's probably pretty sick about getting it. I think he got a bill for my kid's school. So that one, I think, is probably his least favorite. It's always mine. <laughs> Great, awesome, perfect. Well, listen, Adam, this was this was this was really really edutaining. I would say thank you so much for your for <laughs> for your insights and uh, and it was really really good to catch up. And I'm I'm glad that we were able to do so in in front of an audience that's going to appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, anytime. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Adam Rich of Thrillist, another great brand builder on this show to close out the year. Even though you may likely be listening to this episode later, um, I do want to wish the ones that are listening to it right now a, a happy holiday season and a great start into your new year. Thank you for your listenership. This show would not exist without you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I have the conversation. And if so, please do subscribe, rate, and share the show. I know, I say it all the time. This time, please act upon it. It would be absolutely awesome for you to give it a quick rating. Hitting the Mark is produced by my consultancy, Finian, where we create clarity for brand transformations. The episode was edited, as usual, by Everett Barton. And the Hitting the Mark theme music was written and produced by the one and only Happiness One. I will see you next time when we once again will be hitting the mark.